Hi, this is Mark Cushman. I've written for Star Trek. I've written about Star Trek with the book series These Are the Voyages. And Matthew and I are going to be talking all about Star Trek on Trek Untold. Hope you'll join us. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The history of the original Star Trek is one riddled with hearsay and rumors. We take for granted the amount of behind-the-scenes info fans today have when it comes to modern iterations of Star Trek. But as for the original series, much of that info went with the creators to the grave. It's taken a lifetime of work to uncover much of the past about the original Star Trek, and we have authors like today's guest, to thank for making sure the past is remembered accurately. Today, Mark Cushman joins us for Trek Untold, an author who has spent decades compiling this information into volumes of work. Through his publisher, Jacobs Brown Press, Mark has written six volumes of his These Are the Voyages series, with his latest one all about life after Star Trek was canceled, with a focus on the creation of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Each of Mark's books are meticulously filled with details provided directly from Gene Roddenberry and the creators of Star Trek, along with interviews with all of the actors, including the character actors like we do here on Trek Untold, to give you not just a piece of the story, but the entire story. But you're going to hear about how all of that happened a little bit later on. With the original series, of course, there is so much ground to cover, so our focus today is going to be mostly about Season 1 of Star Trek, with a few of our favorite episodes in the discussion. We've also got a few fan-submitted questions sprinkled throughout it, so if you provided one, you may hear it asked today. We don't do that for every episode, but if you were following our social media pages, you would have seen the announcement for it. So if you're not doing that, I hope you're going to correct that right now. This is going to be a lengthy discussion about Gene Roddenberry, Bob Justman, Gene L. Kuhn, Lucille Ball, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and Harlan Ellison. Yes, we're going to talk about Harlan Ellison. We got a lot to say about him. So stay tuned. I guarantee you're going to learn something today you didn't previously know about Star Trek. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And joining us now is an authority on Star Trek, one of the few people in the world 
to have had access to some of the rarest information from the archives of Gene Roddenberry, which he has shared with the world in his book series, These Are the Voyages, available from Jacobs Brown Press. The third volume, or sixth book actually in the series, was just released now, which encompasses life after the original series was cancelled. Today we're speaking with Star Trek historian Mark Cushman. Mark, how's it going today? It's going terrific, Matthew. Thank you. So yeah, I just got your books for the first time fairly recently, and these things are just dense encyclopedias that are filled with so much information. Uh, I'm looking forward to really talking to you about all that stuff, and also talking to you about how you got all that information, because man, it's it's a little overwhelming from a first glance. You bet. So let's start things off with uh, what I like to ask all of our guests on the show, and that's, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? <laughs> Sitting in, in uh, I think, my third grade class in Oregon, in a dairy community, and uh, it was uh, fall of 66, or late in 66, and early 67, and and uh, everybody had been talking about this uh, show called Star Trek, which I wasn't watching because we didn't receive uh, the NBC channel in that area. Uh, it was a lot of mountain ranges uh, that prevented it from coming in. We got CBS and ABC out of Portland and no NBC. And uh, so I didn't know what they were talking about. I was still watching Lost in Space and Voice of Sea and Wild Wild West and Outer Limits and things like that. And then one day, at the, towards the end of the class, uh, the teacher said, uh, okay, here's your homework assignment. And everybody in the room groaned. And she said, I know it's Star Trek night. And this was on a Thursday. And, uh, and she said, okay, no homework. And there was a cheer. And I thought, what am I missing? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I got out of doing homework. That's great. And then finally in the summer of 67, uh, Channel 8 out of Portland, NBC affiliate, fizzled in enough to where through a snowstorm and static and everything, I was able to catch the, uh, the rerun of uh, Devil in the Dark. And then a week later, I saw, I think, Arena and Squire of Gothis and a few other episodes before it fizzled away. And uh, and then I didn't get to uh, see Star Trek again for about a year until my family moved to an area where we could receive NBC reception. So I got teased with it. And, uh, and, and I'll just say one last thing about this and this long answer is that, um, you know, having been watching those other shows, which were very entertaining, for a 10 year old, uh, you know, uh, I, I saw this devil in the dark episode and it was on a whole different level. It was every bit as entertaining as these other shows, but it was about something. And, and as a 10 year old, I couldn't say, well, there, there's a theme to this. I don't think I knew what a theme was, but I sure was thinking about it afterwards. And that night lying in bed about, uh, how, much more interesting this show was. And sure enough, the following week and the following week before the channel faded out, uh, it was the same uh, impact on me that these shows were taking science fiction to a whole nother level that this 10-year-old had never experienced before. Yeah, Devil in the Dark is one of those really great episodes that I think is perfect for a beginner because it's got a lot of action, it's got a lot of tension, there's a lot going on there story-wise, uh, so it's, it's pretty obvious why that one is the one that got you hooked. Um, so... From there, though, when did you? Discover- you know, and what's strange about it, Matthew, is I don't think there's a single scene in the entire episode that takes place on the Enterprise. Maybe there is a, a brief one. Yeah, they, they probably call up to Scotty or yeah. something, and and we see the inside of the Enterprise or a small portion of it for for a moment. But uh, but the episode pretty much takes place on 
uh, underground caverns and and uh, things of that nature. So it was kind of a strange one to start with because I really didn't get a good look at the ship, but I sure got a good look at it the next week. <laughs> what was your first reaction when you saw the Enterprise? Oh, I was blown away. Uh, you know, anybody who got NBC, uh, which was probably 99.9% of the American population in cities and other areas, uh, you know, they were seeing coming attraction previews for the fall. They were seeing the Enterprise fly by. They were seeing shots from inside the ship and things of that nature. But for me, you know, I just gone through six months of hearing the other kids talk about this Star Trek show and uh, teasing me because I was still watching Lost in Space. And uh, and then to see it, and I think the very next episode was Arena. And um, it was just, uh, my God, I'd never seen anything like that. And when I did these books, I interviewed all the um, guest performers who would come in and guest star in episodes and things of that nature, as well as regular cast and everybody else you can imagine. But the reason I'm mentioning the guest performers is I would ask them, you know, what would, what did it feel like being on those sets? And uh, and they said, you know, it was like the bridge. It was like somebody stole a big, grand, expensive set from a motion picture and moved it over here for a TV show. They they were just stunned by the uh, by by the layout of the ship, which was all on stage nine at Desilu. The entire stage was the Enterprise, and right next door was stage ten, which they used for the planets. So you had the entire uh, interior of the uh, ship set up, the hallways, engineering, the bridge, sick bay, captain's quarters, the turbo lift, everything, and uh, briefing room, uh, and so forth. But the bridge especially, because it was built like a pie, where there was, uh, I think, eight, maybe ten, but I believe eight wedges. Uh, it's all in the book, I just can't remember. Uh, that, that could be pulled out so they could move the cameras into that area and film from a different angle. And then they would put that wedge back in, and they would pull out another wedge and move the cameras over there. But everything was wired up, you know, and all the uh, the flashing lights and everything else. And uh, the guest stars were just blown away by this set. So we know your Star Trek origins, but where did you start to pursue writing as a profession? Um, well, I became interested in writing um, right in that moment. Um, you know, I was always very creative as a kid, and I was drawing my own comic books and things of that nature. But I wanted to write for television and uh, or knew that I would want to later on. And uh, and probably Star Trek, more than any other show, really fueled that because it showed me that you could not just entertain people, but you can enlighten people. Not that a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old has much that they can enlighten you about, but <laughs> as I got older and got into high school and, and uh, college and so forth, uh, you know, I was still watching Star Trek reruns. And what else was on in the 70s? Charlie's Angels and, and stuff like that. You know, so it was, it was like I'd see that show and see the potential of what you could do as a television writer. And so that kind of fueled my interest to become a TV writer. So a lot of what I'm going to ask you next about yourself is actually in your very first book. But uh, you know, just for folks who haven't gotten it just yet, uh, I'd like to ask essentially how you went from being super fan to being Star Trek authority, which I think also kind of leads into how you ended up meeting Dorothy Fontana and uh, where things went from there. Yeah, well, uh, my first encounter with Dorothy was when the animated series was on in 73, 74, 75. It was in 74 that I uh, I wrote a sample script and because uh, I'd already been writing sample scripts for other shows. I was just in high school, and uh, but uh, but I was 
you know, turning these things into my English teacher and getting a better grade <laughs> because of it. He's like, oh my God, you wrote a TV script and things of that nature. So I wrote one for the animated series and I contacted her. I, I wrote a tour at Paramount Pictures and she responded by letter and said, uh, you know, we've, we've, we're shooting our last episodes now for the animated series and, uh, and I'll be leaving. I'll be going on to other stuff. I don't know if the show will continue or not. But I just wanted to respond, which was very nice of her. And um, and then I met her years later uh, after I met Gene Roddenberry and after I'd interviewed him. And I think he uh, connected me in with Dorothy and Bob Justman and uh, and eventually John D. F. Black and all the the creative people on the show. And then I just started interviewing the writers and the directors and then the cast members and then people who worked on the sets. But Gene was the one who gave me access to uh, all the uh, the files, uh, the show files, and they kept everything. They kept uh, uh, something like 45 boxes of, of memos and uh, production schedules and scripts and the, the whole bit. And uh, he had Susan Sackett uh, give me all these things after I interviewed him, which was for a local uh, area, Los Angeles area TV special. And I was working for a company that uh, did those things. And, uh, and that started my relationship with Gene. Uh, so that started uh, work on the book, and uh, uh, but it just took me years and years and years to get around to it because I had become very busy uh, writing uh, scripts and uh, eventually directing and things of that nature. So it was decades before I actually sat down and wrote the books from all this information that I had been amassing for <laughs> more than two decades. So how sweaty were your palms the first time you met Gene Roddenberry? I'll tell you, I was... Uh, you could have picked me up off the floor. I remember Bill Kama was the name of the guy, and he said, we're thinking of doing something on Star Trek uh, for a local TV station here, probably the channel that carried it. And uh, and he said, who knows anything about the show? And you know, I raised my hand and said, I've seen them all. You know, I, I love the show. And uh, I wasn't an obsessed fan. I never went to any conventions. Uh, well, I was sent to a convention once to deliver film, uh, several episodes. Uh, from a company that uh, that uh, licensed them out, not Paramount, but uh, a syndicator. And um, uh, but and, and I met Arlene Martell for the first time, and later became a friend, and everything else there. And uh, James Doohan, and Walter Koenig, and George Takei, and uh, so forth. Um, uh, I got to go to a party that they all went to after the convention, and it was pretty cool. Uh, and we watched blooper reels, uh, but I but I didn't go to the conventions. I didn't dress up. I didn't collect phasers or anything like that. I just loved the show, you know. And as a as a writer, uh, and somebody who was starting his career as a uh, uh, screenwriter, uh, I just uh, found it to be one of the best out there, if not the best. Uh, that show because of the themes of all the episodes and the believability of the characters, putting them into a science fiction setting, but these characters that just came off so much more real and so much more three dimensional than Joe Mannix uh, and, and and characters like that, you know, who are kind of cardboard and kind of one dimensional. Uh, so the show was a, a great inspiration for me for those reasons. And then when I started doing the books. And started getting access to uh, all the memos, which I include in these books. The books are so huge, and there's so many of them. Is uh, every episode has a chapter, and you can read the memos that are floating back and forth. They're excerpts from the memos, and uh, between Roddenberry and Fontana and Justman and Gene Kuhn and Stan Robertson at NBC and all these people. And so you see what they're 
thinking and wanting with every single episode and what they're battling with every single episode uh, as far as uh, can we get by the censors? Can we afford to do this? Uh, things of that nature. And even episodes that didn't get made because they couldn't get past the censors or they couldn't find a way to do it within their budget. Uh, so they had a lot of scripts written by um, esteemed science fiction writers that didn't get made. So we have a whole chapter on that in each book for each season. The Voyages That Never Were. The vo- I think that's the name of the chapter. It's, there's one of them in each of the books. There's, uh, for your listeners, there's a, there's a book on each season. It's like about 600 pages or 700, I think, on one of them. And, um, uh, and each episode has a 15, 20-page chapter, uh, plus a lot of other chapters in between, uh, that walk you through the writing and the making of every episode. And we even license all the Nielsen ratings. So you, you're taken all the way through the release and the broadcast of that episode and the reviews that came out. And everything else. So it's it's all this information, but it's not it's not an encyclopedia. It's not a reference book. These are I call them, and my publisher calls them a biography of a TV series. We treat Star Trek as flesh and blood because it is. It's Gene Roddenberry's flesh and blood, and Dorothy Fontana, and Gene Kuhn, and and William Shatner, and Leonard Nimoy, and everybody who came together to do this show and directors Mark Daniels and Joseph Pevney and Ralph Sineski and on and on. And um, uh, and they all came together and connected, uh, uh, became one, and made this uh, series. And so you're hearing their thoughts, you're seeing their struggles, you're you're seeing the conflicts, uh, especially the conflicts between Gene Roddenberry and NBC, uh, and uh, just the mechanics of trying to make the show. And so you're going you're going through the whole process with them. Even when they go into the hospital, having an emotional breakdown, you know, so you're experiencing it as if you were there, as if you were part of it. So that's that's much more than a reference book uh, or an encyclopedia. It has all that information, but the information is organically inserted. And I use my my background as a screenwriter to find the drama and make it a dramatic story like we're watching a movie about the making of a Star Trek, not necessarily a documentary, but, uh, but more, more like a docudrama, uh, except it's all real. You're hearing their words. If you were going to turn this into a film production, a movie, uh, you could certainly do it as a documentary, and you could have voiceover tracks and interview tracks all cut together. But if you did it as a docudrama, like a miniseries, you know, the making of Star Trek, and hired actors uh, to play these parts... The dialogue's all written for them because it all comes from the interviews and it all comes from the memos and the letters they sent to each other and so forth. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have an audio book out on, uh, on season one. And uh, Vic Mignogna, who plays Captain Kirk on Star Trek, continues, uh, uh, we should have brought him on here. You know, if we do this again, we should bring Vic on uh, to be part of the, the program. But uh, he, um, he, he did it. Uh, and it has a cast of almost a hundred, including DC Fontana, including um, uh, a lot of people who were there. Uh, Ralph Sineski, uh, director, uh, Bobby Clark, who played the Gorn, uh, Sean Kenny, uh, on and on and on. Um, people who uh, who were in the series during the first season and working on the series during the first season, and for people who passed away, like Leonard was going to do it, uh, Leonard Des Moines. 
but uh, but he passed away before we uh, we started recording. And uh, so his son Adam, who sounds a lot like his dad, does all of Leonard's parts. And and James Doohan's son Chris Doohan, who plays Scotty on Star Trek Continues, does his dad's parts. You know, from the interviews that I did, and from the the memos and the letters and everything else. And we have Rod Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's son, in there. And so so you, it's really uh, you just you can read the book or you can listen to the book. But it's it's like a um, it's like a radio play. It's uh, it's a big production with uh, a lot of different voices coming and going. So I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Gene Roddenberry some more and kind of talk about what he was doing before he started writing Star Trek because he had a whole bunch of different jobs basically before he became a TV writer and producer. So uh, give us a little bit of background about uh, Gene Roddenberry before he became the TV mogul. He was a very very successful TV writer, but even before that. Uh, he was um, uh, a pilot, a uh, captain in the Air Force during World War II in the in the Philippines, and he flew a, bi- a bomber, I believe it was a B-17, and survived a crash. A mechanical failure caused the uh, that's my dog wants to make himself known uh, caused the bomber to crash, and uh, I think two, maybe three of his crewmen died in that crash. So he saw the worst of life. I mean, he fought in a war. He saw the lowest man could go. And then he became a commercial um, uh, pilot after that, uh, uh, TWA and Pan Am. And, um, uh, and he was a passenger because, you know, when you're a pilot, you'll, you'll fly a plane to a certain destination and then another pilot takes over because you can only fly so many hours at a time and you got to take a break. And so he hitched a ride on another a flight to get back to a city where they wanted him to to fly the next uh, uh, flight out that he would pilot. So he was a passenger on this ship uh, in uniform, you know, from the airline. Uh, and that, that jet crashed in the desert uh, in uh, the Middle East in hostile territory. And, uh, and with a couple broken ribs, uh, the pilots, everybody in the cockpit died. Uh, so, and quite a few passengers died too. And, and so, he broke a couple ribs, but he led the surviving passengers out of the desert um, uh, miles and miles and miles to get to uh, safe territory where they wouldn't get killed. And um, uh, so, and then he became a uh, policeman for the Los Angeles, uh, for LAPD and rose to the rank of sergeant. He was a motorcycle cop at first. Uh, and then at the very end, he was writing speeches for the chief of police. Uh, and then he, he was also sent to be uh, uh, a technical advisor on a lot of police shows uh, and and supplied stories to Dragnet based on true stories. You know, he would be the one who would find the stories in the files of LAPD because he wanted to be a writer. And so he had all that experience behind him uh, before he... Um, uh, became a TV writer, and he never had to shoot anybody as a cop, but uh, he did uh, uh, use his gun to kill a dog that had been hit by a car, and the dog was suffering and dying, and he took out his gun and ended its misery because uh, he loved animals. Um, and and so that's where he came from. And then as a TV writer, uh, he sold about 100 scripts. Uh, they're all in there. 
and uh, in the book, and uh, you kind of walk through. There's a big chapter that opens it uh, with Gene Roddenberry's life and early career because it's all very important because he brought all this background to Star Trek, and um, uh, he was the top writer on a on a very popular Western series in the 1950s called Half Gun Will Travel with Richard Boone. Uh, he wrote more scripts than anybody else. He, he won a Writers Guild Award for one of his scripts, and then he started producing. And uh, he produced a series called The Lieutenant, which he created, which um, Gary uh, Lockhart was in, uh, starred in, and Robert Vaughn, who then went on to do Man from Uncle. And Gary Lockhart, of course, was in 2001, but he was in the Star Trek pilot where no man has gone before, as Gary Mitchell, who gets turned into a god, uh, and uh, godlike being with powers. And... Um, uh, so he did that series, and it got canceled, not because of the ratings were bad, but uh, because he was telling edgy stories, and one in particular really upset the network and upset the Pentagon, who were allowing the series to be filmed at Camp Pendleton in California, and so they evicted it. They said, if you put this episode on the air, well, you're not going to get to film here anymore, and he fought to get it on the air, so uh, it did, and, um, and then the... Uh, the show was canceled. So at that point, he decided if he was going to do another series, if he was going to create another series and try to produce another series, he wanted it to be a show where he could talk about the subjects that he wanted to talk about. And Star Trek became that show because he could do stories about Vietnam. He could do stories about racism and God and sexism and overpopulation and, and everything else because it's taking place on different planets and it's in the future. And he could get by the NBC censors by doing that type of show, although there were lots of fights. So once he got Star Trek going, of course, the pilot was the cage. And I've got a question for you about that original episode. And this is something that's bugged me since, like, forever. So it, this is a moment that's really early on in the episode, and it's really quick. But there's a moment where we see Pike walking down a corridor in the ship. And as he's walking, he's passed by a young couple who are basically wearing clothes that would have been a contemporary for the 1960s and not the time period that the show actually takes place. Like, mm -hmm. These folks are wearing shorts, and, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, it, it's very anachronistic. So I'm just curious if you know yeah, what's... They, they had been on the, uh, in the gym or something. <laughs> I think they, they were, like, carrying tennis rackets to or something. Yeah. You know, because the ship, ship had areas where you're on a five-year mission, so it had um, uh, areas where you could go and exercise and recreation rooms and things like that, and and so you kind of see these people walk by very quickly, and it's a little bit jarring. Uh, to say the and, least, and they never yeah. Did it again. Yeah, it was very bizarre to see them. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense. They just don't really even address it. It's just like, hey, who's here's two folks who look like they've just walked in from 1965 on this futuristic spaceship. So uh, I'm glad I got an explanation at least for that finally. <laughs> but you know, but but see, it, and, and it would strike me that way too. And like the episode, The Way to Eden from the third season, which had kind of space hippies in it. Yeah. Um, uh, which is not one of my favorites or anybody else's no. favorites, but uh, but it, but it's got some interesting stuff. I mean, the fact that Doctor Seven is uh, uh, infected with a disease that came out of sterile environments and and altered environments and everything, you know, and things like that. So even even the episodes that weren't great had interesting stuff in them because they always had those themes. But my point is to get back to your statement is that um, you know. Trends come and go, and they come back around, and uh, and we see that in popular music. We see it in clothing fashions and everything else. And I mean, not long ago, and I'm talking 
just in the last several months, last couple of years, you see people walking around in tie-dye T-shirts. And those are from the 60s, you know, and, and so it's it's like when you see something like that in a show and you go, well, this takes place in the future, they wouldn't be dressed that way. Maybe they will be dressed that way 200 years from now. And suddenly this fashion trend comes back into vogue and everybody's wearing short shorts and, and things of that nature because uh, we certainly have seen that happen. Uh, I'm going to let my listeners argue about that point because, yeah, that's, that's a real interesting point. But uh, speaking of, I do have a few fan-submitted questions today. Uh, which I'm going to mm-hmm. scatter throughout this interview. And my first one is from Eric L. Watts. And he wanted to ask how involved was Lucille Ball in convincing NBC to pick up Star Trek as a production series? And his reason for this question is because he's seen uh, a certain post going around on a lot of social media talking about how pivotal her role was. And uh, mm-hmm. he believes that her role in that is being exaggerated to her single-handedly saving Star Trek. So um, just how critical well, was Lucille Ball, Ball to getting Star Trek all, picked up? all that information on the internet came right out of my books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before my books, nobody even talked about it. I was the one who unearthed all this stuff. Um, matter of fact, uh, before my books, I'd say about 80% of the stuff, at least 70% of the stuff on Star Trek was wrong on the internet. Now it's down to maybe about 30%, uh, because these books have corre- corrected a lot of the uh, folklore and the mythology that was incorrect. Uh, since these books are based on the show files and the memos and the people who actually made the series. So it kind of sets the record straight, including the ratings. A lot of folklore about that. Uh, as far as Lucille Ball is concerned, uh, she's, she was not in the meetings at NBC. She sent her lieutenants. She sent Herb Solo and Oscar Katz to take care of that. That was their job. Uh, but she was the one who gave it the green light. <clears throat> and, and the reason she gave it the green light is, is if you know the history of Desi Lou, and I'll do this very quickly, uh, you know, it was her and Lucille Ball. Uh, I'm, not, I'm sorry. <laughs> she was Lucille Ball. <laughs> it was her and her husband, Desi Arnaz. Desi was, Des, was the D.E. And, and Lou was for Lucy. Uh, and they formed Desi Lou Productions when they made I Love Lucy. She was a star already in movies and radio. And CBS wanted her to do a TV show. And Desi was uh, very successful as a band leader and toured with his band. Uh, And they wanted to do a show where he could stay home uh, and not travel the country and they could be together more. Uh, So they agreed to do the TV series. And uh, but they wanted to film it in Los Angeles uh, instead of having to go to New York, where all the sitcoms were done at that time live on video and then on Kinescope on the West Coast. And they said, we want to do it in L.A. And CBS said, well, that's going to cost extra money to film it in L.A. and edit the shows together. And we don't do that. Nobody does that. And Desi said, we'll pay the difference if we can have the rerun rights. And CBS looked at him and said, what's a rerun? There had never been a rerun <laughs> because everything was live. And, uh, and you would film it off of a TV screen for to be aired uh, three hours later on the West Coast, which is why if you see these t- kinescopes, the heads are always a little stretched or whatever, because it was filmed off of a round TV screen. And um, so I Love Lucy was the first, to, uh, first sitcom to be shot with three film cameras in front of a studio audience and then edited and put on the network uh, a few weeks later instead of going out live. Uh, give them time to cut it together. And that's why it looks so much better than the Honeymooners and other shows from that period. Anyway, so uh, they had the rerun rights. 
And a couple of years later, CBS bought those rerun rights back from them because they said, we want to start repeating this in the summer and uh, instead of doing a summer replacement show and we want to run it in the daytime. And so they bought it back um, and Desi and Lucy used that money to buy RKO and turn it into Desi Lu Studios. And now everybody was coming to them to have their sitcoms filmed in this style. But, uh, but after the divorce and after Desi retired uh, and didn't want to run the studio anymore, uh, Lucy was the president. And uh, I Love Lucy was making them a lot of money in reruns. They owned the Lucy show. They owned uh, The Untouchables, which was a show that they did there that they owned. But they shot a lot of other shows at Desi Lou, but they were renting their facility to these other companies. Uh, Lucy knew that reruns are what built Desi Lou, owning a show. So she put the word out to Oscar Katz and Herb Solo, who were her, her uh, lieutenants at the studio, to find me a show that can rerun as long as I love Lucy. And, uh, and they brought her Star Trek uh, that they had read when Gene Roddenberry was submitting his proposal around. And she said, let's do this. She saw the potential, and she said, let's do this. Uh, the board of directors fought her because it was, they said, we can't do a show this expensive. We do sitcoms. We can't do half a science fiction movie every week. And the pilot, the first one, the cage, cost $600,000, which would be like $6 million today, which is just a lot of money for a pilot. And the second one, Where No Man Has Gone Before, cost uh, almost $5 million, uh, or 500000 which would be $5 million today. Uh, and so even after they made the pilots, which NBC paid half of the money, and Desilu had to pay the other half, gambling this money that you're going to have a series – uh, NBC ordered 16 episodes, the first half of the first season. They used to do like 30-plus episodes a year back then. And uh, the board of directors tried to talk her out of doing it. They said, if you do this, it's going to bankrupt the studio. We don't have deep enough pockets to do this kind of show. But she said, no, we're going to do it. This is going to, this show could rerun forever if we can get enough episodes made. And, uh, and sure enough, it bankrupt the studio. And halfway through the second season, she had to sell Desi Lu to Paramount. So the board of directors was right, but she was right that Star Trek could be as big as Isle of Lucy, and it's actually bigger. It's become the most successful television franchise in the history of TV. So yes, Isle of Lucy did that. My my books brought this information forward, and now when you see all this stuff on the internet, give a nod to my books, because they never say where they get the information from. <laughs> no, that's how memes work. There's no information given. Uh, but I've got a follow-up for you about that, and that's how come Lucille never actually did a cameo on Star Trek? Well, she had her own show, and and uh, uh, she wasn't looking to promote herself. Uh, she did Star Trek to um, for for the studio. She said that this is what built Desilu. This is what can keep Desilu alive: is owning shows, being able to make money uh, in foreign distribution and reruns down the road. So she was thinking as a business person when she gave the green light for Star Trek. And, and if you get volume one, uh, you'll see a lovely letter from her to Gene Roddenberry uh, and her husband, Gary Morton, uh, saying how much they like the show and even a congratulations note from her after the first episode had a 47% audience share, 47% of everybody watching TV was watching Star Trek. Uh, and that comes from A.C. Nielsen. And this is also the BS about the ratings. You know, uh, we bring the truth out. And um, with every episode, 
uh, and it costs quite a bit of money to license all those ratings reports. So uh, she sends his congratulations, boys. Looks like we have a hit. Uh, no, she was there. Matter of fact, it, when they were shooting the second pilot, they were a couple days uh, over schedule. And uh, uh, it was the end of the last day of filming. And it was like, oh, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> it's all in the book. The times are there because we have the production schedules. And, and she was actually came onto the set and started sweeping up the styrofoam because they were filming the scene where Kirk is, and Gary uh, Mitchell are fighting and throwing boulders at each other. He's throwing boulders uh, and, and all, everything else. And of course, all that stuff's made out of styrofoam. And there were explosions and everything else as Kirk fires the phaser rifle. And she's out there sweeping that stuff up because it was clogging up the tracks for the, uh, the, the dolly for the camera. And they had to stop. Oh, we got all this styrofoam on the tracks. And somebody looks up and, and get somebody to sweep this. And somebody's sweeping it, and someone looks up, and it's Lucille Ball. And she says, what do I have to do to get you guys to finish? <laughs> so, no, Lucy was there. <laughs> she was there doing it. But she wasn't looking to do a cameo. She wasn't doing cameos on anybody else's shows. She had her own series. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Wrestling is on two levels right now. Either you all in and having a good time with what's going on and enjoying the body slams, headlocks, submissions, and the tope suicidas, or you're just pissed the hell off of what's going on in the wrestling landscape. What kind of wrestling podcast has the same kind of dilemmas? Your guys here at Turnbuckle Tabloid. Jada Rest Santine Olski is here to bring to you the ridiculousness, the buffoonery, the nonsense, and all that that is just straight wrestling. We're here with that opinionated New York swag and the ridiculousness that goes along with it. Get us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Turnbuckle Tabloid, you don't want to miss it. And we're here every week, unlike some wrestling promotions. Laters. We now return to Trek Untold. So the show would be, of course, nothing without the Enterprise itself, and that's always been one of the most iconic things about Star Trek series, and it's basically a part of the American zeitgeist. Uh, that ship was designed by Matt Jeffries. Can you tell us a little bit about him and the process for designing the Enterprise? 
Yeah, well, he was a former military man, as Gene Roddenberry was, as almost everybody was back then. Uh, I mean, this is the 1960s, and it's just 20 years after, you know, World War II, and 10 years after Korea, and and so most most of the people who were in their 30s and 40s and 50s had served in the military, and and he had, and he was a designer, and he designed uh, uh, for the movie industry. He designed mostly um, uh, ships, uh, like uh, if if it was a movie about World War II, and if it was a Navy ship, and he would design these things, and that's why Gene wanted him is because, you know, he, he wanted the Enterprise to feel like a naval vessel. And so he brought in Matt Jeffries for that. And so Jeffries designed everything, everything you see on Star Trek, uh, from a set to a model, uh, he designed. He didn't design the phasers or the tricorders and all that. That was Walt Chang who did that and a couple other people. But um, uh, but Matt Jeffries designed the Enterprise inside and out, and as Dorothy Fontana said, D.C. Fontana, she said to me, and I used the quote in the book because I thought it was great, she said, every week, Matt Jeffries had to build another planet. <laughs> Not literally, because it, it, it took six, seven, eight days to film these episodes, so it wasn't quite every week. And some of the episodes were bottle shows that just were filmed on the Enterprise. But let's say every other week. She said every week. Every other week, he had to build a planet. And uh, different color skies, uh, different vegetation, different alien-shaped structures and everything else, plus the ships. He designed the Enterprise, the Klingon ship, the Romulan ship, on and on, the shuttlecraft. So um, uh, Matt Jeffries uh, is, is really a very important person in the history of Star Trek. And you'll see pictures of him in the book, uh, holding the Klingon ship after he designed it and things of that nature. I mean, uh, just uh, he was a lovely man. Very nice man. Everybody loved Matt Jeffries. And we've got a great follow-up here from Rhett Coates uh, asking about these ships in particular because he wants to know what the NCC on Federation starships stand for. And there's apparently a few different theories about it from some different folks who are involved in Trek. So uh, I'd like to know if you just kind of run uh, that forget down. Forget the theories. Hey, hey, everybody, forget the theories. <laughs> forget the, the, the folklore. Forget the BS. You've got the books. <laughs> You know, get the books. It's all there from the show files. Um, you know, I, I think the one thing I wanted to accomplish with these books more than anything else is get all the nonsense off the Internet. Uh, that'll never happen because you'll have a lot of Star Trek chat rooms with people who haven't bothered to read the books because, oh, it's too much work to read read uh, three 600-page books. Uh, but, uh, but it's all there. We don't need to speculate anymore. It's all there. Uh, NCC, uh, and it's, it's, that would be in volume one, early in volume one, uh, because that was for the cage. It was Matt Jeffries who came up with that. And the reason he did it is they didn't want, and you'll see the memos, uh, they, they didn't want to say, uh, to, to tie it in with the, um, with the United States too much. Uh, it's USS, not U.S. Enterprise. Uh, you know, it's USS Enterprise, which is United Starship Enterprise. But the NCC uh, come, came from two places. One is uh, a couple of those letters are used were used in a lot of um, private commercial planes back then. Those were the numbers that the Air Association assigned uh, the letters, uh, and they also came from Russia. Um, I kind of said that like Trump, didn't I? Russia, <laughs> but but uh, 
they, uh, uh, I think the CC uh, came from Russia, that they had that on a lot of their military vessels. And he wanted, uh, and Gene Roddenberry agreed when Matt suggested that, uh, that Russia would have to be part of this. That by the time we get to that point, if we get to that point, it's mean we survived each other, which means that we're working together, and it's going to be a joint space fleet. Um, and so they wanted to put those those letters in there. Anyway, um, it's all in the books, and it's stated much better in the books because you're seeing the memos and you're seeing uh, the interviews and everything else because I'm trying to remember offhand from something I wrote back in 2013. <laughs> um, but But that's where it came from, and he kind of merged it. And that's that's how the number came out. He picked those numbers because uh, they would read better on screen. Uh, he didn't want to use an eight. It's a little hard to read if something's flying by really quick. So he picked numbers that, at a glance, you could make out what they were. Uh, so you'll hear, you see all the reasoning behind everything they did. And what blew me away, Matthew, what I really love about Star Trek and, and these people, as I found all this stuff out, as I did the research and had access to all this material, is that, um, that everything they did, they had a reason. You know, they really thought it out. And that's what you see in these memos, and not just from the scripts. You know, where Gene would say, what's the theme? What are you trying to say with this story? It was never good enough. And I experienced that, too, when I pitched Sarek to him over at uh, Next Generation. You know, it was never good enough just to give him a good, fun idea. I mean, that would be the first thing. And when I pitched Sarek, it was like, what would happen if a Vulcan goes through senility and blah, blah, blah? And he thought, well, that's interesting. What would happen? And, and, and all that. But, but then he would ask you, after you caught him with the hook, he would say, okay, but what do you want to say? with this story. And that's what you see in, in uh, episode after episode in these books uh, with the memos, is they were always wanting to say, what is the message we're trying to get through? Well, that same line of thinking went into everything else. Uh, the, you know, if, what, are, what are the numbers are going to be? Why are we doing this? Why is the ship shaped this way? Uh, and so forth. And, and the reason the ship is shaped that way is so the saucer section could detach because you've got uh, you've got all those nuclear reactors and energy there. Well, what if something's going terribly wrong with one of those things? You want to be able to um, eject it. Uh, so all these things are kind of standalone, and then they're connected. Uh, but but each one of those parts of the ship could be ejected if it was endangering the rest of the ship. We never saw that happen in the series, but uh, we but we heard them refer to it on one or two occasions, that it was something that could be done. And we later saw them do it in one of the movies. So everything they did, they thought it out to total detail and sent all the scripts and all the designs and everything over to NASA and to the RAND Corporation to make sure the scientists said, yes, this is right. And what Gene would always say to them is when they sent the scripts over, he says, look, you know, we have to stretch it a little bit to make it entertaining. I'm not asking that everything we do on the show be probable, but I want to know that it's possible because I want scientists to be able to watch this show and not be shaking their heads and walking away. So, so everything came from somewhere, and it's all in these books with the memos and everything else. You see everything. So, Mark, I want to ask you about one of my personal favorite episodes, and I just rewatched uh -huh. this one recently, uh, and that's Arena. 
which is yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's a pretty great episode. We just mentioned in fact a little bit earlier about you being that one of the first ones you saw. Also, I think, I think it was the second or third episode I saw. Yeah, oh, yeah. Boy, did it blew me away because <laughs> it had everything. It it had a monster, which you know, ten year old kid wants to see. It, it was filmed out of Vasquez Rocks in that fort that was built for um, uh, a TV show uh, uh, about about uh, a British cavalry unit in India uh, that was on a few years earlier, and it's torn down now. They they tore it down, unfortunately. Uh, but great locations, great outdoor uh, filming. Plus, you're in the ship. There's a chase. There, it's got everything. And that, but it's got that it's Star Trek, so it's got that message at the end. You know, with no, I will not kill him. You know, the thing, and and uh, and the, and the Metron looking down and saying, "There's hope for your race." Maybe in 40,000 years, your people and ours can get together. <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> oh. As I was reading your book, one of the things that I found out about that I didn't know previously was that there was actually some discussion and concern over plagiarism with this episode. So, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I'd like to ask you to kind of explain that to our listeners and also kind of talk us through some of the craziness of filming that outdoor fight scene between Kirk and the Gorn. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fun episode to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, they're all fun, and there's great stories behind all these episodes, as anybody who reads these books will see. But uh, this is a good example of that. So first of all, uh, the plagiarism, because the way I lay out these chapters, I always start with the script, because the script comes first. And, um, and so we go through uh, several pages on, on the writing process and the scripts uh, with the memos and the notes from the censors and everything else. Then we go into the production, and you got the whole shooting schedules and what was shot on what day, where it was shot, and stories from the people who were there of what, how it went, what happened. And then we go into the release of the thing and the reviews and everything else. So that's kind of the template of each chapter for these episodes. Um, so with the writing, uh, Gene Kuhn wrote that. And he had just come in to take over for Roddenberry as producer. And Gene Roddenberry wanted to step back to executive producer. He was exhausted. He'd been rewriting all the scripts himself, 70% dialogue rewrites on those first 13 or so episodes. And so he brought in Gene Kuhn. Uh, who had worked on had been a producer on the Wild Wild West, which Gene Roddenberry thought was a terrific show and really admired what they were doing over there, merging a western with a spy series with a sci-fi. He just thought it was brilliant. So he uh, that's where he got Fred Freiberger from. That's where he got Gene Kuhn from. So he brought Gene Kuhn in, and Gene Kuhn was a fast writer, and they needed a script uh, because one of the scripts they were going to shoot wasn't ready. Uh, and so Gene went home and wrote Arena in a single weekend, the first draft, uh, and brought it in. Uh, and you'll see the memos in there where they sent it over to the network, and it was uh, DeForest Research, which uh, went through, not to be confused with DeForest Kelly, but uh, all the scripts were sent over to Kellum DeForest and his research company with uh, uh, Pete Sloman, uh, was one of the guys who would give them notes. And, uh, and they realized that this was scene for scene, a ripoff of, uh, of a science fiction short story written by Frederick Brown, and, um, which was called Arena. <laughs> I can definitely see some uh, similarities right here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see the bullet points in there from the memo from uh, DeForest Research where they list the bullet points, and it's like, I mean, you know, obviously, Frederick Brown's short story didn't have a ship called the Enterprise. It didn't have a guy named Kirk and all that stuff. But but the story points were pretty much the same, and the title was the same. And uh, and they had already filmed it. 
you know, because uh, Pete Sloman didn't uh, realize this until after it had been filmed. They gave notes when they read the script, but it kind of was nagging at him. And then he remembered where he'd seen all this stuff, and he went and got a copy of the short story and read it and was, oh, my God. And you see Herb Solo writing it you know, from Desilu going, we could get sued over this. What are we going to do? And uh, so they contacted Frederick Brown, who was watching Star Trek, who liked it. He was a very well-known science fiction author. And they called him up and said, would you like to do a Star Trek? And, and he said, you know, I, I, I would love to. I don't think I can. I mean, I write books. I don't, I, I don't really write TV scripts. I don't know if I could do that. Uh, but maybe I can come up with a story that you can use. And they said, you already have. <laughs> <laughs> We're sending you a check. Your name will be on the episode. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> Easiest money he ever made. Yeah. So, and for a show that he liked and he was kind of thinking, eh, it'd be fun to maybe send a couple stories into them. So that worked out. Uh, and then what was the other part you asked about the, the uh, fight? About, yeah, about oh. filming the fight scene. So I asked Bobby Clark. Bobby Clark was the guy in the Gorn suit. And I always try to ask questions nobody else has ever asked them. Not just to be outrageous, but because I'm curious. And, uh, and and so, you know, we have all the information of shooting out there at Vasquez Rocks. It was hot. He was in this suit. He had to whip, They had to blacken part of his face so that when the Gorn opened its mouth, you didn't see the pink of his skin in there, uh, everything else. And, uh, you know, but I said, you know, what was the process of doing all this? And, and he said, well, they told me when they put me in the suit in the morning, and there was like five days I had to wear that thing out there. Uh, and there was one other stuntman they had alternated with, but Bobby was the primary one. Um, he said, uh, they said, don't drink any coffee. Don't, you know, have a very light breakfast. Uh, you can drink as much water as you want because you're going to sweat it out. But, you know, we don't want to have to take you out of the suit to be going to the bathroom all the time. And, uh, and I said, so Bobby, how, how did you go to the bathroom in that corn suit? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, you know, it was kind of difficult because he said those feet were basically uh, scuba diving flippers. And uh, so, you know, a foot and a half, two feet long. And and he said, and I had to go into the honey wagon, which is the portable Johns that they bring out there that's like on a, like you know, going up into a wet bagel or something. And you have to walk up this little step ladder that gets you up in there and he's got these big flippers on there and he'd go up there and he'd have to pull the suit unzip the suit from the back somebody have to zip it so he could pull it down enough to be able to relieve himself because nobody put a zipper in the front <laughs> you know of course i can't have that <laughs> stuff like that so anyway it's all in there <laughs> because because uh he was wow nobody's ever asked me that mark and it was like <laughs> wow that's the first thing i'd be thinking about if they were putting me in that suit so uh, you get to really experience what it was like to be in that suit and be the Gorn. So, Mark, talking to you now as a Star Trek super fan, what's your favorite fight scene from the original series? Uh, the one between Kirk and Finnegan in Shoreleaf. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a pretty that's, good fight, actually. That's yeah. epic. That's epic. It goes on for like five minutes, <laughs> and the music is just terrific. It was scored, and the music slows down as they're losing energy and picks up and everything. That's, yeah, the and Gerald Freed score. Yeah, yeah, and I interviewed uh, Bruce Mars, who played Finnegan, and and he told me what a lot of people told me, uh, that Shatner was just great. Uh, you know, with all the Shatner bashing that you hear, it's like uh, uh, he was just terrific on the original series. Um, most of the people who came and guest starred really thought he was just wonderful. A few didn't, but uh, most of them did. 
And uh, Bruce Mars told me, he said, Shatner and I choreographed that entire thing, or really Shatner did. He's like, I didn't know. And they had stuntmen that were going to step in for a few of uh, the shots where he would flip me or whatever. But other than that, we were doing all the, the minor stunts. And he said, so we choreographed it. And, uh, and Shatner says, well, let's, let's have you stand this way and face me this way. And because that way the camera will have a really good shot of your face. And, and he was going, man, yeah, I mean, this, this guy's the star of the show and he's worrying about me being <laughs> well represented on the camera. And they worked out that entire fight sequence, which took uh, about half a day to film. Watching it, you would think it took two or three or four days to film. I think they filmed it, uh, it all afternoon and into the evening, before it, right up until when the sun was ready to drop, and they had to pick up some additional shots from it the next morning. Uh, so it was it was the better part of the day, uh, filming that thing that goes on for about five minutes. It's just a terrific fight scene. And what's what's really great about it, Matthew, is that you can't spot the stuntmen they were used so little <laughs> it's one of the rare Only times yeah flipper. yeah for a flip or two and and uh but other than that it's shatner and it's uh bruce mars getting dirty and and uh and and just just doing it and it's it's beautifully shot it's beautifully choreographed i'm sure that you talk to these gentlemen also about just on the topic of working with william shatner we've heard kind of like mixed things in this show as well about working with him uh in particular like we spoke with carl held who was in Return of the Archons, and uh, we spoke with Garth Pillsbury, who was in Mirror Mirror, and uh, uh-huh. you know, with Carl, he was saying that he their relationship was kind of shaky to begin with, and he was constantly, you know, if you watch back Return of the Archons, uh, Shatner is constantly in front of Carl, kind of like block his face almost, and uh, in yeah. Mirror Mirror with Garth Pillsbury, basically there was the scene called for Garth to like do the stage punch to Shatner, and he didn't want that to happen. He was apparently not interested in having Garth throw the punch at him, so. Now, there's a lot of interesting stories, and uh, I guess, yeah, different point of views about Shatner. Yeah, you know, well, look, everybody's uh, got different sides to their personality, and everybody's got different moods on different days. Uh, it, it was interesting for me, because I had all the production schedules, the shooting dates for every episode, and I would interview all these guest players and stuntmen and and everything, and 90% of them said wonderful things about Shatner. You know, he welcomed us, he did this, he was, he was, he was funny, he knew all of his lines, he knew all my lines, uh, he was just terrific. He was the captain of the ship, uh, the captain of the set. And, and, uh, uh, but you'd get a few who didn't like him, and I noticed that whenever he had a couple weeks, the ones who didn't like him, uh, it was during uh, a couple weeks when something happened in his personal life like when he and his wife separated uh and he was really distraught and whether he was going to be able to see his daughters and everything and for a few weeks he was not in his usual chipper mood on the set and the, and the guest star on that show would mention it uh and william um william uh oh god what's his last name great guy uh he was decker in uh, the doomsday machine you know he told me that shatner was counting the lines of dialogue and um uh, and nobody else had ever told me that. I thought, why would he be doing that? Well, the week that they shot that episode, the uh, the Emmy nominations had just come out, and Leonard Nimoy was nominated for an Emmy, and Shatner was not. So, you know, he comes to the set, and he's going, man, I'm barely in this episode. This episode's got more Spock in it. So as the star of the show, he was that week he was really kind of focused on, am I coming off as the star of the show? Uh, another guy who didn't care for him much was um uh the guy who played the uh 
Federation commissioner in uh, Galileo 7 who kept storming on the bridge and telling Kirk, you have to abandon the search, we got to be somewhere and all that stuff. And, um, uh, and, uh, and his main beef was that, you know, he was doing his lines and he was kind of walking around because that felt natural to him when they were rehearsing the scene. And Shatner would say to him, you can't walk around on the bridge. And he thought, what an a-hole. You know, what, you know why, why, why can't I walk around? He's being so controlling. Well, you see in there, j- just the week before, a memo came down from Gene Roddenberry telling everybody in the cast, don't walk on the bridge as you're saying your dialogue. You can walk, but then when you say you're lying, you need to be standing still because it's these eight wedges of a pie that are pushed together and strapped together, and, and they squeak. And we're having problems with the, the sound editor with these squeaks that are coming in. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, you can pace, you can do whatever you want, but when you say you're lying, you can't be moving. And so, you know, this guy was moving around and saying his lines and Shatner says, no, 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 you can't walk, you know, just stand there and say you're lying. And well, the guy didn't know why Shatner was telling him that. So, you know, you'll have different uh, opinions of people based on things that you don't know that, that they know about filming the show or things that you don't know about what's going on in their personal life that particular week. We all have bad days, you know? So Mark, I want to ask you about one of the original series episodes that I think is in most people's top three episodes. And for many, it's their number one. And that's city on the edge of forever, uh, which was written by Harlan Ellison. But you know, reading your book, it talks about how there were so many changes to that original treatment that Harlan wrote. And that caused a lot of friction between Gene and Harlan, which I'm sure there already was plenty between them right. because Harlan's a pretty prickly fellow. Uh, I do love Harlan's mm-hmm. work, of course, but can you tell us a little bit about the story behind the making of City on the Edge of Forever and the relationship between Gene and Harlan? That was one of the first uh, episodes, assignments that was given out in the first part of the first season. And it wasn't filmed until the very end of the first season. It was the second to last episode filmed. Uh, and uh, because it took so long to get that script right. Uh, Harlan had written a couple uh, Outer Limits episodes, and he was really good, and he was a science fiction author too, and he was good at anthologies. Uh, he wasn't good at catching the voices of the uh, the recurring characters. So they had to rewrite uh, more than 90% of the dialogue, uh, you know, that, uh, that he had written, and he, he didn't care for that. Uh, so there was a battle of rewrites, where they would rewrite it, and then he would do a rewrite of them, uh, trying to put back in some of the stuff he had done and back and forth and back and forth. And he was also a slow writer. You know, he was used to taking his time. So so they, at one point, uh, Bob Justin wanted to nail him into the office because they gave him an office uh, to bring him into the studio and do his writing because he just wasn't turning in the pages quick enough. And and uh, they'd hear the typewriter going and he'd put on a Rolling Stone record or something. And, and, uh, and then, you know, they'd wonder what's going on. The record's repeating itself or something. And they'd go open the door and go in the room and the window's open and he's not there. He's over on the set <laughs> hanging with the cast. And so John D.F. Black told me and Bob Josephman told me, he's, he's a, it's, you know, we, we were thinking about nailing him in, <laughs> nailing the window shut and nailing the door shut to try to get this script from him. Uh, but you see the memos that are in there and everything else. They, they went through a lot of uh, rewriting on that episode. Uh, Stephen uh, Carabasas, uh, who was story editor for a brief period towards the end of the second season or middle of the second season, did a rewrite of it, uh, which Harlan hated. And so Harlan rewrote it again. And then they handed it to Gene Kuhn, uh, and he did a rewrite. And uh, and then uh, 
Jane handed it off to Dorothy Fontana and said, here, you need to do a rewrite. And she was going, oh, don't tell Harlan I'm rewriting a script. He'll, he scares me. And then Gene Roddenberry did the final rewrite, and he put in the speech that uh, Edith Keeler makes about the future, the positive future of mankind, because Gene Roddenberry was very much into that. So there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen with that particular script. And it won a Hugo Award as Best Science Fiction Production of the Year, up against major movies, Fahrenheit 451 and the uh, uh, a couple others, uh, Fantastic Voyage, and, and it beat them out. Uh, but Harlan took his original draft and sent it to the Writers Guild, uh, and it won the Writers Guild Award as Best Hour-Long Drama of the Year. Not the version that was filmed, but the version that, before everybody started rewriting it. So both the filmed version and the the early draft both won awards. And Harlan was at the award show. And Gene Roddenberry was there and Gene Kuhn and, and, and Herb Solo. And he held the statue up over his head and he said, don't let them rewrite you. <laughs> and uh, who was it? I think Herb Solo said, uh, he said, I was looking at my butter knife and I was looking at my spoon and looking at my fork in front of me on the table and I was trying to think which one of these would hurt the most if I used it to try to kill him. <laughs> That's basically Harlan Ellison in a nutshell. Yeah, and Harlan and Gene had a uh, kind of a, a funny relationship after that. Uh, <laughs> and you see memos or letters between them in these various books. And they were uh, Harlan was always kind of uh, getting digs in. And Gene Roddenberry would send him a letter saying, I think you were out of line in what you said. And we, we had to rewrite you. You didn't have that script right and all that kind of stuff. That's basically Harlan Ellison in a nutshell. He's not causing problems with Gene Roddenberry. He's getting into fistfights with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I love Harlan. I, I really did, you know. And you know, I interviewed him, of course, for the books. And 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 uh, uh, I remember after volume uh, season one came out, the first book, and and he was sent a copy, and my phone rings, and I look down and I see Harlan Ellison on the uh, caller ID. And I thought, oh God, oh no! And I picked <laughs> up the phone because you know he scared us all. He because he was so smart and he could be so caustic, but he was funny. And he was, you know, and he was brilliant. And so you took it. Uh, but I'm, I was like Dorothy Fontana, thinking, oh, no. And uh, I picked up the phone. I said, hi, Harlan. And he says, Cushman? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I've read your book. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, because I put in everybody's opinion and everybody's saying, you know, hey, it was really difficult working with him. And so I just figured he was going to rip me a new one. He says, Cushman, uh, I read your book. And I'm not going to say it's awesome because that's a word that I reserve for the Grand Canyon and Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> but it comes pretty close. And I said, oh, thank you. Uh, can we quote you? No. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm quoting him anyway. Uh, no, he's, I, I like Harlan. Yeah, he's one of those guys I wish I could have been able to meet in real life before he passed away. I, I love, he has a YouTube channel that still is out there with all of his uh, various commentaries and things, which is just awesome to watch. And I'm going to use the word because oh, yeah. he is awesome. Yeah, he was great. He'd get up in front of an audience and he'd do an hour. and Very entertaining. Uh, I mean, he was just a fascinating guy. He had such a quick mind. And he had such a candid way of saying things that it always shocked you. But, uh, but he was really a nice guy, too. You know, when you got to know him. So, Mark, what episode do you think had the most cursed production? The episode that had the most problems getting made that caused everybody headaches? Uh, there were a few, but the one that has to take the prize is the alternate factor, which was from the first season, uh, about halfway into it. 
and uh, that's the one with Lazarus, who's from the uh, an alternate universe, and he kind of goes back and forth from good Lazarus to bad Lazarus, and he's trying to steal dilithium crystals from the Enterprise so he can get into the time, the the, the dimensional chamber, and uh, between these two universes, and fight off his uh, his counterpart. Um, and um, it was a very confusing episode and, and everything else. But uh, the reason it was confusing is because uh, he, Lazarus seduces Lieutenant Masters, I believe her name is, or Masters, and and, uh, uh, and she's uh, she's got something to do with the dilithium crystals on the ship. Yeah, and, she was like uh, the engineer in that section for that episode. Yes, thank you. And, and wears a blue uniform because it's more of a kind of a science type thing like Spock wears blue and, and everything else. Um, and Janet McL- McLaughlin was hired to play that part. Uh, and John Drew Barrymore was hired to play Lazarus. And he was a very well-known actor and from the Barrymore uh, dynasty and, and would be the father of uh, future father of Drew Barrymore. And, um, uh, and they did all the makeup tests and the wardrobe tests and everything else. And he was in there on the first day of production uh, for a final testing of the beard and, and everything like that. Uh, he wasn't going to start his scenes until the next day. And he read the latest draft of the script. And just a few days before, NBC had realized that Janet McLaughlin was black. <laughs> and there was a love scene between her and John Drew Barrymore. And um, and they kiss and everything. And, and a white man had never kissed a black woman on network TV before. And uh, and NBC was a very progressive network. They were doing I Spy, which had Bill Cosby and Bob Cope. And Cosby is the first black actor to win an Emmy. I did a book on that series as well. And um, uh, uh, so they were a very progressive network, but this is 1966. And would the Southern affiliates even carry this episode? So, you know, they kind of said, you know, you got you to recast that actress or change the script. And this is the day before they're supposed to start filming. And Gene Coon says, I'm not going to fire the actress because she's black. Well, we didn't know she was black. Her name's Janet McLaughlin. (laughs) And she hasn't done any TV. She's from the stage. We didn't know she was black. Uh, So he rewrote the script. And he he took out the the whole seduction scene and kind of gutted it. And to where you now watch it and you wonder why that character's even there. Uh, They could have just had Scotty be there. But it wasn't Scotty because you couldn't have Lazarus kissing Scotty and romancing her, <laughs> so he can get the dilithium crystals from Scotty. That wouldn't have worked. Uh, so, which do you think they would have had more of a problem with the interracial out. kiss or that kind of kiss? <laughs> yeah, they took that all out of the script the day before, and John Drew Barrymore is reading it, and he goes, "This isn't what I agreed to do," and he got up and walked, and it was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> That's our guest star and a big guest star. What are we going to do? And and Shatner said, you know, I'm friends with Robert Brown, and he's not working this week. Uh, today's his birthday. He's at home. They're having a party. I could call him. He lives in Malibu. Uh, and I bet he'd come out and do it, and he's a damn good actor. I did a pilot with him a couple years ago. Okay, okay give him a call. And so Robert Brown comes out. Well, he's never seen Star Trek. And they hand him the script. Uh, he walks on, thinking he's just coming out to pick up a script and go home and read it. And Roddenberry puts his arm around uh, Robert Brown and starts walking him towards makeup and says, "Okay, we're going to put you in makeup, and you'll start shooting in about an hour. And, and uh, we're going to put this beard on you and all that stuff." And 
uh, and, and he's going, what's a dilithium crystal? What's a starship? What's a, what, what's any of this? You know? Uh, so they, they were doing catch up and they were trying to film this thing a couple days behind now. And, and, uh, and it was like, uh, dominoes, one domino hits the next one and the next one, and they all fall down. And, uh, so it's just when you watch that episode and it's the one they filmed right after arena. So here's this great episode. And then here's this one that just doesn't work. And it's because everything was going wrong. And at the end of it, there's a memo in there from Bob Jessman to Roddenberry. And he says, boy, I wish we could just take this one out and bury it on the back lot. But we've already spent $190,000 of Desilu's money. We've got to, we've got to give it to the network. Uh, so they, they put it back at the very end of the first season. And it was an episode they just all hated uh, because it just it started out as a good script and it just turned into a, a mess. So that was the most problematic episode of Star Trek. They had more fights. They had more problems. Like when they finally did do the first interracial kiss for Plato's stepchildren in the third season, uh, the NBC censors came out to the set and said, you can't uh, kiss, kiss her. You can't have Shatner kiss that black woman, Michelle Nichols, and, and all this stuff. And so they, they, uh, Roddenberry came to the set and they fought about it and they ended up filming it two different ways. One where they just kind of touched cheeks and another where they actually kiss. And he said, and we'll fight about it later because you're killing our production time. We're, we haven't shot anything in two hours here. We got to, we got to start rolling. And so, uh, a week later, uh, they're looking at all the footage and the fake kiss one, the one where they just touched cheeks the camera was on uh, Shatner and uh, he crossed his eyes into the camera. Uh, so it was an unusable take. So the network had no choice but to go with the, the kiss. And that became the first interracial kiss on network TV. Which is interesting though, because like technically mirror mirror kind of actually predates that because that's when uh, Shatner kisses Lieutenant Marlena, who was played by a uh-huh. Filipino actress. And no one really ever talks about that because it basically, it, it comes down to colorism essentially and how, you know, obviously, it was a much bigger deal for a white person to be kissing a black person at that time. So yeah, it was okay to kiss kiss Asians. It was okay for white white Asian back then, and uh, and white Hispanic, uh, because you know there so many U.S. servicemen from World War II had married Filipino women and Japanese women, and uh, and from Vietnam Vietnamese women, and brought them back, and so those type of interracial relationships were were too were very common, but uh, but white and black. Uh, back then, not in most of America, you know, for anybody who's saying all racism everywhere. No, it was just certain areas of America, the Deep South. They were worried about Georgia. They were worried about, uh, you know, uh, Arkansas. They were worried about some of these places where uh, the NBC affiliates might be reluctant to air the episode. So this kind of broke it down. and And it really didn't cause a problem. I mean, they got some letters, but most of them were positive. Well, most of the reaction was very positive. And, uh, so it, it, uh, it kind of opened the door. I mean, Star Trek and I spy were the two shows that opened the door for interracial casting on network TV. There had been blacks on TV before, and there had been Asians on TV before, but, uh, not as regulars, uh, on a TV series to this degree. And, uh, uh, as as in these two shows, but uh, it sure changed very quickly after that. And uh, and 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 Star Trek was the first interracial kiss, and and of course, then the very next year, you've seen it happen on other shows. But it it always takes somebody's got to be first. 
So I think, Mark, as we wrap up this interview, I want to ask you about definitely a fan favorite again. Uh, that's The Trouble with Tribbles. Everybody loves that episode written by David Gerald. Uh, what can you tell us about The Trouble with Tribbles? I'll tell you something very interesting about it, but I'm going to save that for just a minute. And, and uh, um, yeah, I, I interviewed David Gerald, and of course, again, I have the memos and all that, and you do too. Everybody's got them. Just get the books. Uh, I actually own the script uh, signed by David. I met him at a uh, convention. Yeah. And and so David uh, was very young. He was only, I think, 20. Uh, he was in college, and uh, he loved the show. And so he sent in uh, a spec script, which they did not buy, uh, but but they liked his writing. And so Gene Kuhn kind of took him under his arm, and he gave him the assignment to do Trouble with Tribbles, because they'd never done anything like that. They'd done humorous episodes before. Uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday and, and so forth, but they, they had never done an all-out comedy. Uh, and something that whimsical. And uh, so, so Gene Kuhn gave him the script assignment, and, and, uh, and they did it. Uh, they had to create all the dribbles, and a lot of them moved. They put them all over little toy walking dogs and stuff like that, little Japanese walking dog toys, and put the material over those so some of them could move and, and everything else. And it was Pigeon Queen that they used for it on the soundtrack. Uh, and everything else. And everybody loved it. They all had a good time. But that's why Gene Kuhn left the series. And that's the interesting thing I'll share with you about this. I always wondered, why did Gene Kuhn leave Star Trek? Uh, Roddenberry brought him in. He produced the second half of the first season, the first half of the second season, and um, and was there for a few episodes after Trouble with Tribbles. But uh, you know, why did he leave? And the general consensus was burnout. You know, he just got burned out. It was a lot of work doing Star Trek and rewriting all those scripts. And, uh, but it was, uh, uh, Gene had, uh, had gone off to do another project, uh, a Robin Hood script for some studio that never even got made. So he was kind of moonlighting right in the middle of the second season and not around a lot for a few weeks. And, um, uh, and he came back on, uh, he, uh, he finished that job and he came back onto Desilu and he went on to stage nine, uh, and to check up on the filming and see how things were going. And he heard laughter everywhere. And yet the red light was flashing, you know, which means we're filming and he opens the door and quietly and goes onto the stage and he hears all this laughter and he, and he goes over and it was the scene where all the tribbles tumble out of the storage bin and cover Shatner and he's buried in triples and they could, couldn't even get through a take. Every time they tried to do a take, everybody on the crew is just cracking up and Roddenberry's on the sidelines watching this quietly and he turns and he walks away and, and he calls Gene Kuhn to his office and uh, well, after he went to the screening room and he said, show me the last episode you filmed and it was I Mud the other comedy. And he says, show me the, give, let me see this, the, re, the latest draft of the next script, which was a script he co-wrote, Bread and Circuses. But Gene Kuhn co-wrote it with him and had done the last couple of rewrites and it was leaning towards comedy. And so Kuhn came in and Roddenberry said, look, you know, I, I don't mind there being a little humor in Star Trek and we've been doing that and it's been working out, but we're not a comedy. We're not lost in space. You know, this this is not my Star Trek, uh, and and uh, I don't want this. And Gene Kuhn said, yeah, but I'm the showrunner. You hired me to be the showrunner, and the fans are responding, and, and this isn't Lost in Space-type comedy. This is this is real comedy. It's it's organic comedy. It's not ridiculous. So the, the comedy comes out of the situation. What if Kirk's problem is his ship is buried in all these 
quickly breeding balls of fluff. And and uh, it's just as real as any other story we could tell. It's just one of those situations that becomes so absurd that you got to laugh. And that's real humor. It happens to all of us in our life where you step in dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> you're either going to curse or you're going to laugh, <laughs> or you may curse and later on you'll laugh. Uh, so, you know, this stuff happens in life. And and Roddenberry said, but I don't want it. And Coon said, then I'm going to turn in my resignation. And that was that. And the other thing I didn't know, but I found out, uh, and it's all in that season two book, is that Coon's fingerprints are all over almost the, the rest of season two, because those scripts are being written way in advance. So even though his name stopped appearing on the screen for the last uh, 13 or so episodes of the second season, uh, as you read the uh, the script part of each chapter of each episode, you know, it's all these memos from Gene Kuhn. He's giving the assignment out. He's helping the writer to rewrite the script and structure the script, and he's doing drafts on the script and everything else. And then John Meredith Lucas comes in. Uh, to take over for Gene Kuhn, and he's inherited all these scripts that are just about ready to go before the camera. So even though Gene Kuhn's name wasn't on uh, the last dozen or so episodes of the uh, second season, his DNA is is on many of those episodes. So, Mark, as of now, there's six volumes in the series of These Are the Voyages, which cover pretty much the inception of the series and take us through all three seasons of the show, the animated series and the latest book, which covers the first movie is just out now, but are there mm-hmm. plans for you to go beyond that and cover the rest of the original series cast movies, or even go into I, next gen DS nine, all those I other want series. To. Yeah, I want to now, you know, I'm going to not going to say there's plans. I mean, there's a plan in my mind to do it. And I've already collected a lot of research for it, memos and everything else for the rest of the movies uh, with the original cast I would like to do a book that covers Rathacon through Undiscovered Country with about 100, 120 pages for each movie, um, and uh, which is tight for me. <laughs> but, yeah, these but books the, are the uh, no joke. These things are enormous. You can kill a man with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, throw the book in an elephant. It'll drop. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the uh, I would like to do a three-book series on next generation a couple seasons in each book and i've been collecting a lot of memos uh, and stuff of that from the Roddenberry vault and uh and so forth so i would i i do want to do these but you know when uh, there's an old joke what makes god laugh and the answer is that we make plans <laughs> <laughs> god could drop us in our tracks tomorrow so we'll see we'll see how these latest books do uh, in sales, and we'll we'll see if I'm still here in a year, uh, and, and I expect to be. And and uh, these are things I would very much like to do is is continue, not for the entire franchise, uh, but I would at least like to wrap up with the rest of the movies that the original cast did, and and do a book on Next Generation because that these are the pivotal shows and the pivotal movies that really got the franchise rolling. Uh, my God, you know, it would take 10 of me to, to cover every series and every series of movies and now streaming video series, uh, in the detail that I'm, I did for these, but also there's not a need to cover them in that detail because it was the first series primarily, but also next generation, which set the stage for everything that was to follow. These were the pioneers, you know, you, you don't write a book about somebody who, decides to drive from New York to L.A. But you may write a book about Lewis and Clark, who were the first 
two guys to map the area out and, and to not even know what's on the other side of that mountain. Uh, so you write books about pioneers. And, uh, and, and the first Star Trek was the pioneer that made everything else available and showed all the other producers how to do their series. And uh, Next Generation, uh, to a lesser degree, but certainly it's important being that it was only the second one done. If you don't count uh, the animated series and the aborted Phase 2 series, which I cover in these new volumes. So just really very quickly, I'll say that uh, the reason there's three volumes for the original series is because there were so many memos, and they're all so interesting, and there was just so much information, and it's the one that was was uh, taking us where no TV show had gone before. Um, and the reason there's three books in this new series of books, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek in the 1970s, is, um, it's called These Are the Voices, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek in the 1970s, is that uh, uh, this was the decade that brought Star Trek back. Because when it got canceled in 69, you know, when shows get canceled, they're, they're done they'll be in syndication for a couple of years and you'll never see them again. Uh, the 1970s changed all this because the reruns just kept doing better and better and better on more stations, getting better ratings. The conventions are happening. Uh, the, the media is in shock. They're, they're going, they kept all these newspaper stories kept coming out The show that won't die. And they, and they would send people to the conventions for the New York times and so forth. And they'd write an article and, say this is like Beatlemania. We've never seen anything like this because there were no comic cons. There was none of that stuff. This, this created all of that. And so these three books uh, about the 1970s take you through that, the world changing for science fiction fans, for conventions, I mean, just all this stuff coming up and the return of Star Trek is the animated series, the aborted phase two series, which even though it didn't get made, uh, some of the scripts from that series ended up getting made on Next Gen and a couple other of the series to come. And the two-hour premiere episode script ended up getting used for Star Trek, the motion picture. And we see that all getting written and happening in Volume 2. And then in Volume 3, we take you through the entire making of Star Trek, the motion picture, the release, the reaction, the box office, uh, and even into the beginning of Wrath of Khan because... Um, because after Star Trek, the motion picture came out because it went over budget, which was not Gene Roddenberry's fault. And because the reviews were mixed, uh, and they were mixed, they were not all bad. There were a lot of good reviews, which you see in that book, uh, incredibly good reviews. Um, but, but maybe half the reviews were negative because expectations were so high. They had made us wait so long. Uh, so Paramount kind of didn't want Gene Roddenberry to make the next movie. And they brought in Harv Bennett, and Roddenberry had to fight tooth and nail with him because they were going to kill Spock in the first 10 minutes. <clears throat> and Roddenberry really had to fight over that. Uh, so I do cover uh, the beginning of that story in Volume 3, and then that sets us up for me to do another book that would take us through the, uh, the next five movies. So for anybody who wants to check out These Are the Voyages, as well as Mark's other books, because he's also written some stuff on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space, among other things, which that's for a whole other, uh, whole other podcast series, really. But if you guys want to check any of that stuff out, visit jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. And we're going to have a link, of course, to this in the show notes. So, Mark, last thing today, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? It was, you know, <clears throat> I mean, meeting people that, 
inspired you to want to write and do what I ended up doing for a lot of my life and career. Uh, it was just a joy, as you, you mentioned earlier about sweating pond, ponds. You know, it's it's like, wow, I can't believe I'm sitting here having lunch with Dorothy Fontana. I can't believe I'm in Gene Roddenberry's house, you know, <laughs> and in his office, and I'm pitching to him for Next Generation and everything. You know, it, it it's just, uh, I just felt very fortunate. I sometimes still do. I sometimes think back to this kid who was watching Star Trek on TV. And now I've written for a couple of the Star Trek series. And I've interviewed so many people from Star Trek and written books about it, you know, a couple of the series. And, and uh, uh, it's uh, I would have never dreamed when I was 10 years old that I would have gone on to do these things. So I feel very fortunate. I, I feel qualified. I mean, who else would have done this? That's why I wrote these books. Nobody else was going to do this, uh, you know. So, and I and I wanted to set straight all that folklore. I wanted to bring all this information out and share it with the other fans. Stuff that I was just in heaven, going through all these files and finding these memos and the ratings and the production reports and going, man, I want to share this with everybody out there who loves the show like I do. And that's what I, I did with these books. So um, so I, I feel fortunate, but at the same time, I've worked my rear end off doing it and uh, and have made a lot less money than I could have made if I was spending that same time doing scripts and directing. So uh, so I've paid a price, but but it's worth it because this was truly a labor of love. And uh, and if I continue and if I do these other books we've talked about, it'll it'll be a labor of love as well. It's just crazy to think about that this basically all began with a letter to Dorothy Fontana. And if she didn't even respond, I mean, who knows how the course of your life would have just been completely different. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, the first convention I intended, uh, I, I'd been to one uh, years earlier to deliver a film, as I said, but the first one I attended where my publisher you know, bought a booth and had me there signing books, which was in uh, Vegas in August of 2013, right when the first book came out. And I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It may have been Barbara Luna. It may have been, who just prefers to be called Luna. It may have been uh, uh, Grace Lee Whitney. It may have been Celeste Yarnell. I, I just can't remember which one of them it was. I can't see the face, but I remember it was a woman who had been on Star Trek, and they were at a table next to my booth, and uh, and everybody was so gracious. You know, I went over and said hi to everybody, and I'd interviewed so many of them on the phone and met a few of them. But it was like, wow, this is so cool to be here with all all these people who were signing pictures and there for whatever reasons. And uh, but whichever one of them it was that said this, I, I walked over and said, you know, hi, and and I and I and I don't think I had met her. I think I, we had met on the phone when I had interviewed her. And I said, I'm Mark Cushman, and here's a copy of the book, and uh, I signed it for you. And she and she just looked up and stood up and took my hand, and she said, "Welcome to the family." And wow, you know, and that's what it was always like. Every year when we would go over to the convention in Vegas, it was like a family reunion. We'd all go out to dinner, and there we are again, you know. And uh, that that was uh, a wonderful feeling. You know, showbiz people, by and large, are just wonderful people. Very warm, very sensitive, very, very nice. When they become big stars, they sometimes have to build walls around themselves for obvious reasons. But uh, but they're really, uh, they're artists. And whether they're actors or writers, they're, they're artists. And so they're sensitive, they're kind, they're warm, and, uh, and you feel that. And I, I love going to those conventions each year and, 
and uh, being able to see them all again. It was a great feeling. All right, yeah, so thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for being on here today with us talking about these are the voyages, all this great Star Trek history, and hopefully we'll get you back on for another episode because uh, I want to ask you more about the movies and Phase 2, so that's going to be for next time, I think. Okay, bye-bye. And that was our chat with Mark Cushman, and a reminder once more to check out his books, These Are the Voyages, which are available right now from Jacobs Brown Press. There are six hardcover volumes currently available from them, and you can even pick up a signed copy if you head on over to jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. We'll have a clickable link as well in the show notes for this week's episode. And I want to say that the company was in fact kind enough to send me two of the books, and they are legitimately great reads, and they are legitimately enormous. Each book is gargantuan and daunting at first glance, but after you read the intro sections in the front about the origins of the show and that kind of thing, the format is actually perfect as a reference tool. I'm currently binging the original Star Trek series right now, in fact, which is also what inspired me to reach out to Mark. And what I'm doing is reading the chapters in the book about whatever episode I just watched. It's really great being able to add some context to them, and sometimes it even makes me go back and rewatch some scenes just to catch something I missed the first time around. You can't have a Star Trek book collection without these, so I urge you to pick up These Are the Voyages today. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>